You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. ways in which gnosis may be experienced. Thus, we promote freedom of thought. And I actually do think that the, the emphases are important. Right? Freedom of thought in pursuit of one's inward path towards the divine, whether that pursuit is modern or ancient in origin, or individual or communal in experience. Which is to say that if you put four Joanites in a room, you get five opinions. And if you think that that's a joke, I mean, remember the talk we had. Three of them were held by the grace. Right, yeah. That, you know, uh, I'm large. I contain multitudes. <laughs> um, we had the, the discussion on the Sophia. Uh, and there was literally, you know, uh, as many opinions in that room as there were, as there were people. And... One of the challenges of being a Joanite, at least as we've understood it, is maintaining that cohesion in the face of differing opinions. And this can create certain kinds of problems when we're introducing people to the church for the first time. Because they'll say, well, what do you believe? Well, you know, here are these nine principles, you know, and, you know, we believe, you know, some basic things. And they say, well, what do you believe about the afterlife? Well, there are different opinions. Here's our nine principles. And yeah, and we don't we don't necessarily have, you know, a dogmatic stance on it. Okay, well, you know, what do you think about abortion? Well, we don't really take a stand there. Well, what do you think about suicide? Well, actually, there's some disagreement there, right? What do you think about you know the divinity of Christ? Well, actually, there's some disagreement there, which is to say that when we get down to even the most fundamental sort of things, there's still a range of opinions. One of the ways that I like to approach this, and this is what Juliana and I did when she was first sort of investigating the church, is we sat down with the long credo from the Theocletian Rite. I mean, it's, it's, it's a page and a half. It's this massive philosophical you know, expression of, of belief. And we went through it line by line. And she says, okay, it says this. Can I interpret it this way? And I went, yeah, sure. She goes, okay then. And we would go on to the next thing. And she would say, well, this seems to be saying this, but I would sort of read it this way. And I go, that's all right. So we would move on, right? And by the end of that, and this conversation took a couple of hours, we got to the end and she says, I can read this whole credo and say, yes, I believe all of these things. The trick is that the way that she understands those things and the way any other Joanite who's able to say those things understands them might be totally, totally different. But that's, that's one of the beauties of this principle, that that there is a big enough umbrella for all of these different kind of competing ideas. There are, it, but it isn't that we simply are so open-minded that our brains fall out. There are certain basic principles that we consider to be so fundamental that, uh, that it's not that we won't brook disagreement on them, but we raise the very serious question that if you don't believe this, why are you here? There might be someplace else that's, that's better for you. 
And ultimately, I think that this principle reflects not just the way in which we deal with our own spirituality, but it reflects an openness to other spiritualities as well. That is to say that we can deal with somebody who comes and says, I believe this, this, and this, and we can say, well, that's not really consistent with what we believe, so here might be a better place for you. This might be more, more conducive to, to your belief system. This might be something that, that you're really going to, to, to find a, a home in. And that's a way of validating those experiences and validating those beliefs, even if those paths aren't necessarily our path. And so I think that one of the things that's important about, about this principle in particular is that it extends not just to ourselves, but to, but to others as well. And, of course, putting it next to number four is what's really... Yeah, before I, I go I on to that. Yeah. Be, the, the third principle extends far enough as to rule us out of the picture. Right. I mean... And that's exactly and, right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're not, a, we're not an extra ecclesia... Thing, you know what I mean? Salvation yep. does not need to come through the church. If you know, if if we're not for you, you can you can find it's not oh well you can find spiritual realization somewhere else. It's no, you can find spiritual realization somewhere else. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So, if you come to me and you say, Well, my you know, the way that I find spirituality is through shaving off all of my body hair and engaging in, you know, uh, sexual practices outside of the mainstream in order to break taboos and, you know, demonstrate, you know, the, the fact that the archons don't have a hold on me. Knock yourself out. Maybe not here, but that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a, we're not going to sit there and say, even if there's not a place for you in our church, your, your spiritual path can still be a valid one. Your spiritual path can still be one that we can recognize as, as, as having validity. And I think that in many ways this comes down to the fact that we are ultimately an initiatic church. That uh, in the ancient world, uh, an initiate of any mystery would have considered initiates of any other mystery to be his brothers and sisters. And there's the, there are two stories uh, regarding that that I think are, are particularly poignant. One is the story of Melchizedek, and you know, who is this you know, bizarre, freaky character that shows up once in the Old Testament, and we're told nothing about him. And he shows up after the battle right? and goes to Abram. And Abram, patriarch of the Hebrews, does three really interesting things. Things. He gives him a share of the spoils of war, which is really bizarre because every indication is he wasn't there. Yeah. Right? So he gives him a share in the spoils of war. Number two, he seeks his blessing. That Abram gets a blessing from Melchizedek, which is to say that he recognizes Melchizedek as his spiritual, uh, at least equal, if not his spiritual superior, because blessing sort of flows downhill in general, right? So the third thing that he does is he offers sacrifice with him. And when he offers sacrifice, sacrifice at the time for the, for the Hebrews would have been blood sacrifice. And you read the story of Cain and Abel, and we're told that only blood sacrifice is acceptable. Melchizedek and Abram turn around and offer bread and wine. 
That is to say, he undertakes a practice that is fundamentally alien to the practices of his tribe. Why? Well, Guénon is the one who gives the interpretation where he says, says this is because he recognizes Melchizedek as an initiate. That because he is an initiate of a completely different you know, set of mysteries, right? he's still an initiate. That is to say, he recognizes the validity of his path, even if it's not his path. And he's also letting him participate in what they do. Right, yeah, right. He's, he's, he's opening up the doors. The other uh, sort of story that I think is, is important here is um, Alexander the Great. That there is a, a story, almost certainly apocryphal, uh, that when Alexander was off conquering everything he could lay his, hand, lay his eyes on, uh, he came to the island of Samothrace. And Semithrace was the, was the headquarters of the cult of the Kabiri. And uh, Alexander was an initiate. He was an initiate of the Eleutherian? Or, I'm not sure. He was an initiate of one of the, one of the mystery cults. So he got to Semithrace. And the story is that he rode out, you know, on, you know, just by himself. Rode out to the, to the uh, island slapped his boat on the beach, went inland, spent the day there, came back, rode back to the, to the main ship, and said, guys, we're moving on. And he never laid siege. And the idea is that he recognized the Samothracians as brothers and sisters because they were initiates of the cult of the Kabiri. And despite the fact that he was not an initiate, he recognized, them as, recognized their path as a legitimate one. And so, simply moved on. Like I said, almost certainly not true. But, you know, a wonderful story, and it illustrates something very, very important. So, I think that, that because we have this initiatic sort of root and foundation to what we do, that we can be open to these various spiritual paths as, as not just something to be tolerated, but something to be actively encouraged and something to be actively embraced. So, in in a, the context of parish life, um, you know, I've I've learned to whittle that down, being like these are the things we do publicly, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, but I'm still a little curious about like the gray area. So, like, we could do a Gospel Thomas study even though it's not specifically Johannite necessarily. Sure. But, but, yeah. But, you know, where does it end? Where does that gray pool end? Because, and, 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 I, and I'm going to... It's not this. an easy question. Yeah, yeah, I'll just throw out, like, an example, like Sufism. Mm -hmm. Like, and I'm sure we could even, as a, as a local public group, study that in Absolutely. context yeah. to it. But then how far... Does it go? Like, do, do we, we do start we... to incorporate that into the liturgy? Do we start to to do you know encourage specific practices? Like you know, and even in a sense of learning, like application is a part of learning. And then it's like, I don't want to just learn Sufism from a whiteboard or from a projector screen. Right. Like you know what I mean. So, but where does where does that line go from being? And Sufism is a great example there because it is experiential. Because you yeah. can't. It's not just about learning some some set of facts or some history or something. Well, it's about this, a practice. This is where it comes into respecting other people's traditions. Yeah. 
traditions. I mean, you know, I can, you know, I can, I can witness and participate in other people's traditions to a certain degree without adapting them. I mean, there's many, you know, some of these things in terms of other practices and traditions. I mean, they're, you know, like I was talking about with uh, panes of glass and apertures and like and stuff like that. I mean, they they provide angles or perspectives, as it were, um, on the things that I do believe that I might not get from the things that I believe. So they reflect things back in a way they might help me to, to you know, understand a point or a thing in my own tradition um, that frankly is sometimes other people say things better, right? And other, yeah. Things, yeah. other things, you know, uh, uh, become more clear. And there's also, you know, for us, we have because we have the, the nine principles in common and we have the theological model in, in language in, in our literature, <coughs> There's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, common terms, uncommon definitions, you know, in the AJC, and there's a, a, a lot of freedom in that. So, and, and in, in that, you know, kind of sense, we're, we're very Valentinian in the sense that we can participate in something that is a mainstream or a more common or a more convenient language while holding our own individual interpretation, which is something the Valentinians clearly did. So for me, I mean, I found, you know, I got to, uh, I got to watch... Um, you know, Sufis do their thing when I was going through through Turkey, and I found that to be an amazing experience without having to be up there doing it. I mean, I'm still going to be doing the things things that I do, and there's also you know there's things that I would do. You know, I guess there's 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 certain things that I would do personally and individually that I might never do corporately. For example, hmm. I mean, having the you know having the benefit of you know uh, an initiator, an ordaining bishop. And teacher who also did Vajrayana, right? I mean, some of that, you know, he and I went through. So some, some of those things, particularly in Vajrayana, I incorporate into my personal meditation, but I'll never do it in the parish, right? Yeah. Um, it doesn't stop me from talking about it in the parish. You know, if I'm talking about a related subject, and, you know, and we're trying to explore a, a principle or a point or experience, and I will say, here are the things that I have done to, that have, the different routes that have led me to that one conclusion or that camp on the mountain, you know, from earlier talk kind of thing, I, I just don't necessarily include it, what I do in the parish. I just say, you know, for further study, you know, go here. And there really isn't a clear line in terms of, of, of how far is too far. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that the only way that we can discover that is, is to push those boundaries sometimes and to, and to do things that, that, you know, maybe are a little bit outside of, of the comfort zone of ourselves or our communities. And, and find that if we can do that in a respectful, non-appropriative sort of way, I, I, I will very rarely see any problem with that. If it is not consistent with the flourishing of the, of the community, we'll recognize yeah. that. I mean, that, that to a certain extent, I think that that always means we have to trust the judgment of the people with the boots on the ground. Yeah. And, and, and so if you're doing something at St. Eve's, and, and it's working for you guys, you know, I may even find it personally distasteful, but if it's working for that community and it's furthering the aims and, and goals of that community, I would be hard-pressed to say, well, you, you oughtn't to do that, right? I'm thinking more, I guess, on the sense of... Uh, public image, people who aren't in the community but looking in from the outside. And, and so there's certain things that, you know, we've never done this, but we never studied Sufism because one, one of my standards is that I'm not 
a Sufi. Right. right you know what I mean? Right. So when and I find a Sufi... And that's where that question of appropriation comes in. Yeah, right. so, so if I find a Sufi to teach it, then we can discuss, like, how to do it, and it'll probably just be, like, we would host it. Right. Like, yeah. instead of it being, like, this is something the church is as doing... As long it's, it's as it's very hosting. clear yeah. that, that our, our focus remains on, on the things that we do, mm-hmm. then I don't... I can't imagine, although this may be a failure of imagination on my part, I can't imagine a situation where it would be an issue. Um, and that's why, I mean, even liturgically, yeah. right, we can do all sorts of liturgies, and we have done. Right at St. Michael's in particular, we've done a wide variety of different. We've done Cenasius's, we've done uh, Plumber's Short Rite, we've done uh, the ACTA Synaxis, and we can do those things as long as the main practice is still the traditional Joanite practice. The, the hardest thing, the hardest thing in terms of official and administrative and hierarchical stuff, the hardest thing to accomplish or do in this church, and it wasn't always that way, but it becomes increasingly, you know, more difficult as we grow and do stuff. The hardest single administrative hurdle to cross these days is incarnation into the AJC. It is harder than getting into seminary. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we measure, because there were folks, we've had folks who obviously have been ordained in other traditions that they may not presently practice, or people who wish to, to dual affiliate. And so the thing that Lance and I have looked at when considering these applications and things is well. What is their other thing? You know, what is their other thing practiced? Like, you know, are the principles actually, you know, harmonious? And I mentioned in uh, with statement one, one or two. What do, what do we consider the essential statements, right? And so, the things that I had indicated as a, as a guideline were, um, you know, the the emanation panentheism and uh, gnosis, of course, and then the ninth principle of of inclusivity. And yeah. we found many people don't cross that hurdle. We won't consider their application because the other tradition in which they're ordained um, doesn't accept everybody, right? And so, you know, you, you know, and while we accept that people can hold conflicting views all the time, at the, at, the, at, the, at the same point, it's like, who are you selling out and who would we be allowing you to sell, to, to sell out by saying it's, it's okay, you know? If, if, if you don't believe in this particular thing or you're willing to do, you're willing to turn a blind eye to the way, you know, your church treats gays or whatever um, for your ordination or to, to serve in that, that community, I mean, us approving or considering your application says that's okay. Well, it's, it's one thing if we have somebody who says, I, you know, for example, I was ordained in a church that only uh, ordains men to uh, you know to the priesthood yeah, and like I've and I've decided that that's a problem yeah. and therefore I'm le- leaving that tradition and seeking one that's more inclusive yeah. that's not a problem yeah. but if you come to us and you say I'm from a tradition that only ordains men and I want to be in the AJC but I'll only ordain men that's not going to fly yeah. that's that's that that's a deal killer right there's, there there's also so we, we actually we had the debate over Scientology at one point Scientology became a right. discussion among the bishops because the AJC does have members who are Scientologists. And so we said, you know, that we came down to this, you know, a member is perfectly free to be a Scientologist and declare his member. Right. Right. So there's there's different, uh, because the principles, you know, conflict. The member, like it's, you know, the, the, the member can take to heart or throw away, um, you know, many if not all of our principles though, you know, the ninth obviously. Uh, you know, is the thing. So we, we yeah. do make a division between 
you know, uh, the lady and the clergy in terms of uh, that kind of boundary. But yeah, definitely. The, the, the debates we have had or have to have <laughs> have become more more interesting and more involved as, as, as the years go on. But right? Scientology actually became an official discussion at one point. So I think that, that this actually leads us on to the next point. Oh, can I make well, one quick point? Every time I try to make a segue, you're cutting me off here. I'm sorry. Um, you know, you get one more, your eminence, that's it. We promote freedom of thought in pursuit of one's inward path towards the divine. The, the missing element of that is the outward path. Right. It's not commented on at all. Right? So, you know, the, uh, I mean, well, of course, uh, the inward and the outward, the expression, some of those things go hand in hand in two sides of the coin. And Will and I have had some, great, some, well, uh, some so great discussions. Because people like to separate the exoteric and the esoteric, right? But I'm sorry, without the exoteric, there, there is no esoteric. You can't have, you can't have uh, uh, an inner or a hidden or a deeper or a more profound interpretation on something that doesn't exist. Right? Is, that, is that implied, though, uh, you know, whether communal in experience? That That's how I read that as yeah. well. That it, sa it says, if it's communal in experience, then almost by nature it is it, not necessarily exoteric, because it oh. could be within a very, very close community. The other thing, and this goes, this goes hand in hand with discussions I've had with members, and this is kind of how I'm taking it, is, is the inward path can be the inward path, you know what I mean? Members do not have to serve, right. right? You know what I mean? They don't have to serve, they don't have to be in a community, they don't have to, they can take these things to their home and do them. That's, that's all they have to do with it, right? There isn't, I mean, we're the, you know, we're the church that likes to, you know, voluntold every. You know, all of its clerics uh, kind of thing, but that, uh, you know, that isn't true of the lady. There's no requirement. Adam and I envision one day we will have a monastic order. All right. Can I? Yeah, absolutely. Can I... <laughs> Are you sure this time? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> okay. We're entering into the territory to which I do not make statements on, so it's pretty good. Well, and, and that's one of the interesting things is we say, you know, well, you can, you can believe almost anything you want. We, you know, we promote freedom of thought, but you have to believe in this very specific historical conception of God, right? There's kind of a gear change here, right? And when, you, when we were talking in the earlier section that they do break into sort of three, three, and three, you see the gap here. And I think that this is the one where there's there's the biggest gap between these two. Yeah. We're going to say, swallow, I think, we us. affirm that the Godhead is composed of three persons. Not two, not four, not one, three. Well, that's that's sort of oddly specific on some level, right? Which are one in substance, God, the Father Almighty, the Son, the Logos or Christos Soter, and the Holy Spirit or Nima Agion. That's really very, very specific in a, in a very, very strange way if you're coming to us from outside of the Trinitarian tradition. Now, if you're coming from within the Trinitarian tradition, if you're coming from a Catholic or an Orthodox or an Anglican or a Lutheran tradition, you sort of go, oh, yeah, you know, that's God, right? And that's what God looks like. If you're coming to us as some have from a Buddhist tradition, or you're coming to us from 
a pagan tradition, or you're coming to us from an atheist position. All of a sudden, this seems really bizarre. Yeah. I mean, this is... So it's not 18 um, parts of God. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we subdivide, yeah. right? Um, so what the hell is this doing here? Well, of course, the, one, the simplest answer is that we're affirming our connection to a wider tradition. And, and, and really, for me, that's as far as that goes, is this says... We are part of a Christian sacramental tradition that stretches back into Catholicism and Orthodoxy and thereby into the Anti-Nicene Church. And that is, I think, important, that we are part of a, a wider tradition. Do we hold that this is the only conception that we can have of the Godhead? No. And it doesn't say that. It doesn't say, we affirm that the Godhead is composed of only three persons, which are one in substance, and there's no other way that you can think about it. What it says is that this is a way to think about it. This is not sort of what it is in its nature. Because I think that, that even if it isn't stated, it is implied that you know since God is ineffable and unknowable, as we've asserted, early on, that this is a statement more about our experience of divinity than it is about the nature of divinity itself. There's, uh, uh, Joey was, was asking about uh, uh, the liturgy for tonight, and in the parish, you know, they do a few things differently, but he knows that, you know, I'm a liturgical creator, like it is, and you know, wouldn't have particular... Literally, I was like... Expectations, I was yeah. like, I know you're a purist about these things, yeah. so Which it's is your funny, I, about orthopraxy. I, I make up the rubrics as I go, as his grace says. He said to me one time, many years ago, which is somewhat true. And, uh, and I so stand th by this statement. Th there, you know, th there was a there was a reference because in in one of the in one of the scriptural portions, like that we have uh, from the Melanchthonia at the end of the liturgy, where you know, honored with the name God, praised with the name Father. And they make a reference to the, the mother. The mother thing doesn't bother me at all. What bothers me is when people change scripture. <laughs> so they, you know what I mean? Like you know, history should be history, right? It's for me. It's not theology. It's it's history. But the but the thing is is so the AJC has always been Trinitarian. But at the same time, in uh, um, in one of our currently approved liturgies, in the liturgy I was ordained with, plus one of the currently approved liturgies, there's a passage which comes out of the liberal Catholic tradition. It says, loving God, we call you Father, but you are also the fountain of motherhood. And then it begins to, you know, expound from there. But those things, you know, um, dividing that further, so to speak, or, or going deeper, or looking at the different roles that the divine um, plays, kind of thing. Or, as you said, you know, reflective our experience. I mean, that room has always been there. But this is, you know, this is how we meet in the same room and share the same literature. The, uh, the passage that you referred to, though, I think is, is one of my favorite because it specifically says that this is honored with the name God and praised with the name Father. Yeah. Right? It's not saying it is God, it is Father. It's saying yeah. these are the names that we're using. Yeah. Right? We call you Father because there comes this fatherly kindness. We call you mother because there, there is the, 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 the nourishing and the, the, the bringing forth aspect to take those very 
sort of uh, stereotypical or, or historical conceptions of mother and fatherhood, right? We call you God because you are progenitor, right? Yeah. That these are the names that we use in order to think about something that, as we have already affirmed, is ineffable. That is beyond words. We give names to the unnameable. And I think that this is all about giving specific names to the unnameable. But I am going to go out on a great big theological limb here. And I'm going to say that this could be subject to revision at some point in the future. It would not surprise me to, to find us reconsider. There are things that I do not see as subject to to revision. I don't see the ninth principle as ever being subject to revision unless we somehow make it more inclusive, right? Unless we, unless we sort of recognize that we've left something out, right? That would be the only way that we would modify this. This one, I could see this being modified. I could see this being expanded. I could see this being rewritten. I could see this going away entirely. Those are I think that those I are... I didn't see uh, when, but I mean, I, I would have to agree because, I mean, the statement of principles, like I said, was... I have to agree. That's the line that says I'm not fired. <laughs> right? The, uh, well, no, and I said recorded. before that, you know, when, when, you know, when, when Ken wrote the statement of principles and then I, I rewrote them, um, you know, the purpose wasn't to create the will of the church was to enforce it or to, to, to reflect it, it. Yeah. that we had at the time the best you know cross-section and I think it still holds true but I recognize that I mean there are there are people uh, there are people in the church that hold different views I mean we do we do have folks that are more unitarian we do have folks that are more modalist though then again like I said there are portions in our liturgy that subtly kind of encourage a little bit more you know, modalism, uh, you know, or I guess if you want to say aspectism, you know, when God is being a father, God is the father. When God is the son, God is the son. You know what I mean? So yeah. there are portions in our in our liturgy that, you know, that do kind of blur the boundaries of what strict Trinitarian, you know, is yeah. it would be. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's possible. I don't know when it would happen. And I, I don't think, either, but... I mean, we always have enough trouble when we try to rewrite anything. But I... I think my, my, the point that I would make is that I don't think that such a change would reflect a fundamental change in who we are. Yeah. Um, so... It would only be ever a change in a, you know, we wouldn't be changing, it would be in response to... Right. Now, Martin Matthias has specifically raised the question of, of Unitarianism within the context of the AJC. And I was hard-pressed to say that that was somehow problematic. Uh, but a very strict reading of the fourth principle, I, I think, creates some some conf could create some confusion there. Yeah. Um, so, and and since, I mean, the Unitarian tradition really does have a, a a strong sort of historical connection to certain forms of of progressive Christianity, of which I think that the AJC is a part. Yeah. Uh, we have to take those conceptions seriously and. Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to become, you know, uh, oneness charismatics or anything like that, good. right? But, uh, no to those people, but, no. but if somebody comes and says, I believe that what's important about Godhead is its unity, yeah. am I going to argue with that? Well, am, the, I, am I going to say, no, that's wrong? Absolutely the, the, not. The other, the other thing, of course, is, is that, you know, both East and West in terms of, say, Catholicism and Anglicanism, and uh, I hate attaching ism to Anglican. It just, it just doesn't seem like an ism to me. But, but 
Um, but I mean, when you go to the Anglicans and Catholics and the Orthodox, is, is that, uh, you know, uh, each agrees that the other is Trinitarian, but the emphasis they have is actually different. They're using the same term to talk about the same thing, but the, 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 the legs on the stool, so to speak, the weight is different between them. One comes at it from the perspective of three and one, and the other one and three. And there's a, there, there, there is a huge difference when it comes to how you approach um, the sacraments and the mystical theology and that. I mean, I think it, it would be the, uh, um, the East that stresses the one. The oneness, yeah. Over the, over the, over the three. Right? And to so. a certain extent, that may be reflective of a, a closer relationship to its Jewish roots. Uh, and you know the fact that we're we're dealing with that you know Eastern Christianity is is ultimately what took or what we now call Eastern Christianity is what took hold in the Holy Land. Um, so I, I think that that to a certain extent, I mean, when we're talking about the Levant, we're talking about Syria, we're talking about that region uh, for many, many, many years. You know, they were closer to Orthodox practice yeah. than uh, than Western practice, and so as a result, uh, I think that there is that emphasis on the, the on the unity uh, of God, but still the recognition of the Trinity. Yeah, there's still an, even even you know the you know the great religions that aren't Trinitarian. If you look at uh, Judaism or or Islam, there's there's still uh, respect there. I mean, you get lots of. You know, I find, uh, you know, of course, around where I live, um, you know, they're, they're not big on Islam at all, right? Uh, especially if they're evangelical Christians, because they view it as a big thing that, you know, Jesus isn't treated as the Son of God or everything. But I try to flip it over and look at it as a respect issue. I think there's a thing, I don't know if it's in the, I, I can't remember where it comes from, but I believe it's actually um, inscribed somewhere in the Dome of the Rock about, you know, far be it from God's dignity that he should have a son. And, uh, you know, and, and when I was growing up Protestant, I always thought, well, that's just terrible. But now, you know what I mean, they, you know, these, these are people who are, who are preserving what they see as the dignity of God. And while I may not agree with their conclusion, I can, I can respect the intent. Yeah, and because I can come from the exact same yeah. pr perspective and say, I want to preserve the dignity of God. How could I maintain the dignity of a God that doesn't pour out forth into the world? That's certainly true, and we're—I mean—we're going to talk about that in regards to baptism. Yeah. Um, and uh, and again, that is more historical. That's a, I think, ultimately, I would argue, and and you know, people can can take issue with this to be sure. Um, that I would argue that the insistence that baptism be done in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or in the name of the Trinity, um, has to do more with historical canonicity than it does with validity. Um, I think that that's open to significant debate, and certainly we we don't generally consider a baptism in the name of Christ only, for example, to be a valid baptism. But I think that that has ultimately more to do with historical practice. It's right? more about recognizing traditions that are alike than. It I, I think that's exactly it, and that's what I come down. That's what I come down to over and over and over again uh, with this. Uh, is that this is a recognition that we are part of something bigger. Uh, and, and for me, that's very, very important. 
because one of the things that I struggled with as part of Gnostic churches, uh, you know, prior to c- coming to the AJC, was that that I never felt like I was part of a of a broader community. I wanted something that had a history, that had a, a kind of unifying theme to it, and it, it near very nearly led me out of the Gnostic churches. Um, and so for me, the AJC strikes that perfect balance of saying, this is what we practice, this is how we do things, we are our own unique entity, we are part of the one holy, you know, apostolic church that is, you know, one holy Catholic, Orthodox, apostolic church, you know, the, the, the church that is as, you know, as old as God himself and older than the material universe, right? Well, in terms of, you know, wanting to belong to something bigger, it doesn't get much bigger than that. And this is a recognition of part of that. Um, I think if somebody were to come to me and say, I want to apply to the seminary, I want to be an AJC cleric, but I've got a problem with this. Um, I, I, I would work very, very hard to find a way to bring that person in if that's the only difficulty they have. If everything else, they are, are very much in line with, with what we do and what we believe, but they struggle with this, I'd want to see that as a, as an easily overcome problem. Um, I think that the greatest challenge presented by this is the fact that it is so enshrined in our practice. Um, and I think we're going to talk about this later this afternoon. One of the things that was very, very important in developing the Theocletian rite is... Um, one person of the Trinity is never mentioned without mentioning the other two throughout the entire Theocletian rite. Whenever the Son is mentioned, the Spirit and the Father are mentioned. Whenever the Father is mentioned, the Spirit and the Son are mentioned. Whenever the Spirit is mentioned, the Father and the Son are mentioned. They are always well, together. You look at the, you look talking about the sacramental formula and, uh, and all, the, all the essential stuff when it comes to sacramental formulas that involve the name of God involve the Trinity, right? All of them, right? Particularly baptism. But I think something that people miss even traditionally when dealing with baptism is that it doesn't say in the names of. Actually, that's not strictly true. Well, at least everything I I can think of, it's always in the name of the Father. You know what I mean? In Greek, in Greek, you see it both ways. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's actually that's actually a point I'm going to talk about. That you know, while while it is kind of saying three persons, it's saying that's that's one single name, that's one single yeah. Yeah. You know, entity. Right? Both are considered valid, actually. Uh, so to so for example, within a Catholic or an Orthodox uh, perspective, if you were to say in the names of the of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that would not violate the validity It'd of be it. Captain Mad Hair, if, <laughs> if it was, it's just I've never seen it. Never yeah, it the. It's something that I ran across in my research, so so we'll actually actually mention that. Um, I think what is certainly open to a much broader interpretation are the names that we give to the three persons. Yeah. And you know, somebody once a couple of conclaves ago asked, said, "Can we get a list, mm-hmm. a comprehensive list? Were you yes. a comprehensive list of all of the variations?" And I went. 
-hmm. No, we can't. Because there are so many variations. And if somebody comes to me and says, I want to think about this in terms of, um, you know, the basis, the offspring, and the outflowing. Okay? I, I, I would have a hard time saying no to that. That's a, that's a way of interpreting that. I think when it's scriptural... We have to stick to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There, 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 there was a, yeah, I mean, like, when it, when it comes to the administration of the sacraments, I mean, we, we stick to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But outside of those contexts, like I said, we have official rituals of the church and the sacramentary that use Father, Word, and Thought, or Pleroma, um, you know, Word, and Thought. There was an issue, actually, in Quebec, the Roman Catholic Church, I think it was, that uh, a bunch of, uh, was it Quebec? Uh, anyway, a bunch of baptisms were done with, I have absolutely no problem yeah. with the validity of that. I mean, that seems obvious to me. It's not a translation at all. It's it's setting it aside. It's understanding it in a fundamentally different way. Well, I mean, all these things. Like, I mean, sustainer and Holy Spirit, or you know, new Mahagyan. I mean, that that lines up obviously with the with the Joannine Comforter. Yeah, with the, I was going to so, say that's paraplegic. I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. think it's theologically inaccurate at all. It's just ritually I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it. But I would have no problem turning around and saying this is what we're talking about. Right, right, right. right. So more trouble with the word creator. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually the, the biggest issue I would have there is creator. Yeah. Right? Um, so, pangenitor would be better, you know, source. I mean, I mean, think of, I mean, if we were to just say, okay, let's come up with a list of the names that we could use just for the first person of the Trinity. Let's start with the first person of the Trinity, right? I like that one, actually, right? I like calling them the first, second, and third persons of the Trinity. Right? It does imply a hierarchy. Could we even just call it the first? It implies a hierarchy. I mean, I yeah, but it doesn't tell you which one is which. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. Could we call it the first, or the bithos, or the depth, or the profundity, or the first father, or father mother, or pangenitor, or uh, you know, the basis? I mean... All of those work, and all of those might have different formulations of the second and third person of the Trinity that go along with them, right? So I, I think that recognizing the, number one, the historical uh, structure of the Trinity is important. But I also think that, and again, you know, this is always going to be something that's, that's dear to my heart, from an initiatic position, that this is part of the that understanding the structure of, of, you know, the Son, the, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The Spirit is not the Son, the Spirit is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, yeah, right? That, yep, that, that diagram, right? That is a, a vital mystical insight, right? That is that 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 for me lines up right with the the oppositions in the Thunder Perfect Mind, for example, right? That reconciling those contradictions is part of what we do on an inner basis. The triple, the the, the, the Martinus triple flame. The triple flame actually is probably one of the you know uh, one one light all fire 
three. You know, I mean, there's three things, but on, you know, only one fire, only only, only one light. I, I've always found that uh, the uh, the triple flame is actually the thing that most readily comes to mind. When I think of the yeah, I, uh, I mean the the triangle. There are three triangles on the altar. Right? That, that Trinitarian structure is simply an expression of the necessity of reconciling the outward and the inward. And, and, and I think that we wouldn't want to lose that, to be sure. Yeah. I, think, I think it was Lon, Lon Duquette, I know uh, Monsignor Rasbach is kind of time also talking about it in, in numbers, that you know, it's only when the one becomes two and the thing and the two becomes three that you actually have something you can talk about. You can have your head right. So, but do, but as long as we're maintaining a Trinitarian standpoint, they have specific meaning. Like, we're still, like, when we even say, oh, yeah, you can call it the Bithos or the Father or the Death or something, what we're saying still, though, is that God encompasses a sourceness. Yes, I believe so. And then, so you're also saying something else about God whenever you're talking about the Son, and you're yep. also talking about something else. So... There's a truth that underlies that. Like what right, the core the of area. each one of them is before we start just giving, you know, names. I I I think that you raise a good point that we it's, and it's not just that any three names will do. Yeah. Right. That those names have to re, have to be specific to the experiences of those persons. To be sure, I I, I think that that's an excellent excellent point. Um, would I be able to encapsulate in a, a scant few words exactly what, you know, what constitutes the first person, what constitutes the father, what constitutes the source? Could you just be the finger pointing to the moon? That's mm. really kind of what I'm looking for. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that we could definitely do that, and it would all, as long as we had the recognition that it was always fraught. Yeah. That it was that it was always problematic. That it, there was there would always be room for nuance, um, and I think that they would be something like. And and here I'm going to go out on a limb that and and even though we're recording this, I'm I I may not stand by this in ten minutes. Um, I think source is the sort of key concept for the father. I think that. Extension is the key concept for the son, and I think that that comforting and redeeming are the key concepts for the third person of the Trinity. Ooh, I like to hear other people. Will I <laughs> will I stand by that in ten minutes? Not necessarily. I wait out something farther, further because the, you know the. We're talking about the Trinity, but the actual sense of the statement starts with something beyond the Trinity, and that's the Godhead. Yeah, I right. Was that there's still one, there's still one layer beyond that, where even Source is saying too little. It's it's beyond being and not being existence and not and you know what I mean. And the, yeah, I'm right out of my depth. Yeah, go back to pushing paper out of his chair. depth. Get it yeah. right. That's that's a that's a little Aeonic humor for you there. Not intentional. So I was going to say, is the God the Father the same as the Godhead? And do we point back to principle one? I think that the Godhead it transcends the, the three persons. Okay. It, it, it is the underlying reality of the three persons. That's why we don't say God, we say the Godhead. Right? Which, I don't know where we stole that language from, whether we're getting it from the, from the Vedas. 
Uh, I'm totally cool if that's the case. This was over a decade ago, so I... Because, really because a lot of the Vedic translations use this term Godhead. Yeah. Uh, Godheit. Godness. So. Uh, so, yeah, for me, the Godhead is, is, the, is the unity of the Trinity. So it's not, no one person is the Godhead. Each of the three persons is the Godhead. The three persons together are the Godhead. If, if you, I was going to say, if you actually wanted to, to look at a middle road in terms of, you know, a Unitarian perspective and a Trinitarian perspective and how people in KC fit in, it's the people who, uh, I guess, would express directly for the Godhead rather than mm -hmm. the Trinity, which depends from it, mm -hmm. right? And you wouldn't be, you, you wouldn't be excluding the Trinity with that viewpoint. You simply wouldn't be getting to it after a fashion. But not not getting so to it in a in a pejorative sense, right? Yeah. It's not that you're not going far enough. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Just to clarify that. <coughs> so, so I think that these these two belong together in a beautiful way because they are in opposition to each other, because they say very very different things about our experience. That that one, and and I, I guess I see this from a sort of Hegelian or, or Schillingian standpoint as I'm wont to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, that that we've got we've got this outflowing, all right? We've got this infinite generosity, and then we've got the the the, the identity, right? Well, yeah, the, the 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 as I mentioned earlier, where the third principle uh, paves the way for the exclusion of the church. The church also has the benefit of the third principle. It has its own freedom of thought as an entity. Mm -hmm. I, uh, yeah. I I read something interesting once where they were saying the Trinity. Um, the, the, what confuses people about the Trinity is, is not the fact that there's three or that they're made of one, but that they're persons. And that's the thing that, that turns people up, because then that's when people start getting to modalism and things like that. Yeah. But, and they described it as relationships. The reason why the father is a father is because it has a son. Yeah, I, this, yeah, I, yeah, I see that works really well for the first two persons and not so much for the third. Well, the way he explained it was that the Holy Spirit is there because of the relationship between the father yeah, and the son. I've seen, I've it's generated out of that. It, it's certainly not, it, it's not bad or wrong or anything like that. I mean, I think that's a great understanding. I don't think that that's, I, I don't think that that's anything that we could ever say doctrinally. Um, but it's, it's certainly uh, something, something to consider. Um, I mean, they are hypostatic. And that, I mean, that's the problem. Right is thinking thinking that that hypostatic union is yeah. is 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 where we just you know yeah, start banging our heads against the wall. There's there's so many things where you know we're talking about the talking or the the language about the language rather than the thing itself. Yeah, and even persons persona. A hypostasis uh, is, is a a Greek word that literally means uh, standing under, um, and um, it, it's actually a. a the Greek word, if I'm not wrong, it's the Greek word that often gets translated as substantia, the substance. Or the reality. Yeah, the reality. The reality is also... Is yeah, it's... But, I mean, if... I mean, hupo, sub, under. You know, stasis, stantia, right? So, um, yeah, so, so in, in Greek, the three persons are often referred to as the hypostasis. Who posts the seas? 
So, and the unity of them is the hypostatic union. So, if in that wonderful, uh, blissful, unified way in which we're all God, uh, <laughs> where are we on 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 this uh, on this triforce? That's a great question. That's a great question. I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, are these like states of awareness or consciousness or ways of looking at things? Or because because yeah. if I can rephrase rephrase the question, because yeah. make sure I under, understand it correctly, even though I, I have shit for an answer to it. Um, if we are truly panentheist, if all is contained within God. What part of God are we contained in? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I was asking. And that's how tricky. The Godhead and how that relates, because if we're all... That's a neat question. In addition, we talk about the indwelling Christ, yeah. and we talk about the Spirit. I say the Spirit. We say the, well, spirit, the kingdom of heavens within and without. It might not, be, it might not be the case that you know the Trinity is modalist, but it certainly might be the case that we are. Um, you know, mm -hmm. the the... I mean, you, you look at some of, I guess I use Buddhism, for example, and probably, you know, badly where they talk about, uh, you know, the six realms of, of, you know, samsara and, you know, going, going up or down after you kick the bucket. But, I mean, at any, given, at, at any given moment in time, just like the Zen story about heaven and hell, I mean, these, they're not layered on top of each other. They're interpenetrative, right? So, yeah, the, yeah. I mean, they could be, you know... Uh, if, if, if I'm being an angry dick, then you know what I mean, then I exist in the hell realms and so on and so forth. So I think, I think there are certainly, there are going to be days and moments where I participate more in the reality of Christ or the Spirit, you know, uh, or, the, or the Father, or not. Um, I, I, I don't know, I think it would be, uh, I think it would be on our end, not on. It's, I think it's a great question, though. Yeah. It's not something I've given a whole lot. No, and I and I I, yeah. I mean I love a question I can't I can't wrap my head around. You know that's that's where it happens as far mm -hmm. as I'm concerned. It's well, it's it's that moment of 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 aporia, right? I, I have no way through this, right? I'm, I I hit a dead end, and uh, there's a wonderful um, in Antigone, uh, in one of the choral odes, the human being is described as pantoporos aporos. Right, having a way through everything, sort of infinitely clever, and then aporos, which means you hit a dead end. And the French psychoanalyst and, and philosopher Jacques Lacan was lecturing, I guess probably in the 60s, um, a, a, about this passage, and he came to this, this word aporos, right? And he's trying to translate this, and he's clearly struggling, and he blurts out in, in English... He says, screwed. And I said, that's it. That's perfect. That's the perfect translation of this word aporos. And there's something wonderful about, about a, a, a question in the face of which you're just screwed. There's just no good answer here. Right? That's where it starts. That's, that's the beginning of wisdom as far as I'm concerned. I like, that, I like that we're at that point as a, as a community that you know, we've... We've tackled a lot of the big questions and a lot of the um, administrative questions, and now we're talking about 
interesting well, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of and stuff. I, 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 <laughs> I, well, I, I think there's, there's as many as want to. There's, there's an organizational, spiritual, and community, you know, virtue that says, says I mean, you know, the uh, if we only ask the questions to which we have the answers, well, we wouldn't, you know, I mean, this is this is how we this is how we evolve, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this statement came out of these questions, you know, so. In terms of time, we could probably use a break before we yeah, dive into our next thing. So that actually, I think, went real well. Thank you to everybody. Thank for you.